For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore, and Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I am at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Again, Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Well, we spend a good deal of time on this podcast talking about the dangerous, tyrannical specter of the unelected, unaccountable tyrants of the World Economic Forum, World Health Organization and other globalist bodies and individuals ruling the world and the rest of us and wanting to put us under a one-world government, under a police and surveillance state along the lines of what the Chinese Communist Party uh, has implemented in China. If you think it's far-fetched that it can't come here, well, I have news for you. It's already here. And the economic part of this new world order is communist We have been talking about this for a long time, and guys, for as long as I've had a career, an adult career in the media and academia, I've been telling you that we have been in the throes of a Marxist revolution for decades. What we are experiencing now is sort of the end game of this Marxist revolution. And while for a long time I thought it was limited to the United States, to just what we were going through, I also realized that there was a global Marxist revolution that we were being subjected to as well, and that the American players were just part of this this broader globalist movement. And that's why the World Economic Forum's slogan is literally, by 2030 which, guys, is six and a half years away, by 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. So what exactly does that mean? Has anybody really stopped to think? It's sort of like when Obama was talking about, back when he was first running in 07, he was talking about the fundamental transformation of the nation. But nobody stopped and thought about, well, what exactly does he mean by that? What is the fundamental transformation of the nation? I was talking about it. I knew what it was, but very few others really stepped outside and took it to the next step. What do they really mean by this? You will own nothing and be happy 
What do they mean by that? Here with answers is my friend, and I'm so proud to know her, Carol Roth. Carol is a self-described recovering investment banker. She's also an entrepreneur who has worked really, really hard to achieve the American dream. And she spends all of her time now fighting to preserve that unique opportunity for all Americans. She advocates for small business, small government, but big hair, which I am totally down with because, uh, Carol, before I introduce your book, I just want to say you and I are on the same page about big hair. The bigger the hair, the closer to God. Am I right? It's true. I remember uh, seeing you in the green rooms and the makeup chairs at Fox and we were all getting Foxified. And I think that's that's where we kind of took it up a level to the, the next uh, the next level game of big hair. But uh, it's a it's a good club to be in, small government and big hair. <laughs> well, listen, we got to look good if we're going to take on these communists. And uh, as I, as I we're always... We're doing it with style, Monica. Absolutely. And in heels, too, uh, <laughs> which is quite a feat. You can take the girl out of Jersey, Carol, but you can't take the Jersey out of the girl. Carol Never. Ross' new book takes on all of this. It is brilliant. It's called You Will Own Nothing, Your War with a new financial world order and how to fight back. And I just want to say, Carol, this book is absolutely sensational. It's available wherever you get your books. It's available now. Go get it. And I am so pleased, and I said this to you before we went live, I am so pleased that you have pulled together all of these threads of the Great Reset with a real focus on the economic and financial aspects of this financial world war that we are currently in. And you've put it all into one place and you did it so brilliantly. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, you know, when I when I first sort of started out on this journey to write a book, there were all of these kind of disparate threads that were floating around in, in my mind. And I was looking at the social credit issues that were going on and business social credit under ESG. I was looking at the debasement of the currency and the Fed policy. Um, I was looking at de-dollarization. I was looking at the fact that Wall Street is now competing with you for a single family home and that young people weren't able to participate in wealth creation the same way that we were at their age. Um, Big tech trying to, to rent your life back to you as a subscription or a service. And I kept trying to go like, what is this commonality between everything? And then one day I'm walking and it like hits me like a lightning bolt you will own nothing. <laughs> it's just the common theme that keeps coming back and back and back once you start looking at uh, all of these disparate things. So um, I was pleased, well, I, I was actually not pleased to write this book. I'm, I'm sad that I had to write the book, but given the situation that we're in, I was pleased to be able to to tie it together. And really, you know, Monica, to try to take the conspiracy element out of it, because I do think when people talk about the World Economic Forum and they see the memes and they see the phrases, it, it does sound kind of conspiratorial. There are definitely people who are very wacky, who are talking about things and maybe have taken it too far. And that's why I really wanted to source everything where I could directly from the horse's mouths and you know put a lot of mainstream media behind this in terms of the citations and really look at that sort of economic lens that I don't think has been looked through before. Yes, exactly. Because there are so many elements and moving parts to the Great Reset um, in terms of the surveillance state and vaccine passports and central bank digital currency, which we are going to talk yeah. about with you today. Um, but your your emphasis is on the economic aspect of this, the financial aspect, which is really the source of their control and the source of their power. So we're going to get into it. Before we do it, again, the book is called You Will Own Nothing. But when you get a copy of this brilliant book, you will see that the cover is so ingenious because it says you will own and then crossed out are you will own a house crossed out, a car crossed out, a business crossed out, stocks crossed out, your life crossed out, and then nothing. So whoever was the art design on that book, Carol, deserves a raise Pete Gar because Pete Garso, he's a he was a freelancer that was hired by the uh, 
the publisher and he knocked it out of the park. He did the first iteration, which we, we shifted a little bit. But when that that came across, um, I, I didn't. Have, that was his brainstorm. And we were all like, oh, my God, you captured the essence of the book graphically. It was amazing. Well, just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Give that guy a raise. All right. <laughs> so we have so much to cover with you on this. And and I want to start with this idea like and you just touched on it. When people hear about the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, Yuval Hariri, we'll get into all of that. When you first heard their slogan, and you know, you're exactly right on the whole conspiracy thing, because I have uh, very intelligent friends who, when I talk about the Great Reset, they're like, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. What are you, what are you talking about? And I'm like, the guy who runs the World Economic Forum since the 1970s literally wrote a few books called the Great Reset. Like, we're not making it up here. So when you first heard their slogan for 2030 was, by that period of time, by that end date, you will own nothing and you will be happy. You first thought it was crazy, right? It was like this outlandish fantasy. And then you started doing your research. What did you find? Yeah, so you're kind of spending a lot of time on Twitter and other social media. You see these things come across, and a lot of times they are either wrong or out of context. So I always like to to double check in and see, okay, like what's actually happening here? And my knowledge at that point in time of the World Economic Forum was really more of a, a snotty boondoggle littered with the business and political elite where they got together and you know told each other how fabulous they were and ate caviar and you know got to spend some days in in Davos, Switzerland, maybe they went skiing or whatnot. So, you know, I didn't really put a lot of stock into it, but I decided to do my research. In this case, it didn't take very much research. I went right over to the uh, to their Twitter feed, and there's that video um, that you're referencing. There are eight predictions for the world for 2030. It comes from, they say, according to the label there, their global future councils. So there were people who had input on this. And then they have these, you know, eight predictions for what's going to happen. Uh, number one being you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And it, it really is somebody who has advocated for wealth creation opportunities for everybody for more than a quarter of a century now. It was really concerning that you would have these elite business and political individuals predicting the end of private property. So that kind of you know, stood apart. I will also say that People like to talk about this number one prediction, but they never really make it to the other seven, which are equally as horrible. The number two is that the U.S. will no longer be the world's leading superpower. So we'll get into that, I'm sure, as part of the the broader discussion. But there's so much that's packed into that statement of you'll own nothing um, and you'll be happy, which, by the way, as you sort of mentioned, is a concept this, this non-ownership concept has been pushed by Klaus Schwab since 1971 when he started what was the predecessor to the World Economic Forum, the, the European Management Forum, and he came up with this sort of weasel word of stakeholder. But you'll own nothing, Monica, if you think about that. It's not will own nothing. <laughs> it's not the entire world is going to own nothing. It's not the people making the predictions are going to own nothing. It's you will own nothing. So mm-hmm. they're pushing this on you. And then the second piece of that is you'll be happy. And from my interpretation of that was trying to get you to buy into that concept, the concept that, you know, if you don't own things, boy, won't that be great for your life, knowing that if you go along with it, it's much easier for anybody who's, um, quote unquote, making that prediction. But, you know, at the, at the core of this, ownership is what generates wealth. You know, it's what's made everyone in the United States, well, not everyone, but, you know, the United States in general, broadly, um, you know, very wealthy on a relative basis. And, you know, where we've exported these ideas to the world has lifted people out of poverty. So when you have the opportunity to own assets, things that can retain value or appreciate in value, that's where your wealth comes from. So if you don't have ownership, you don't have wealth, you are unfree, according to history, you are unhappy, And throughout uh, history, the people who didn't have ownership often lost their lives. So really what seems like this very cheerful, you know, easy, breezy, YOLO kind of statement, I think is packed with a lot of things that people aren't taking seriously enough. 
You're a hundred percent correct. And what, you know, I always say, Carol, and this is sort of my tagline, communism never dies. It just gets rebranded. And I think the Great Reset really is, it's, it's Marxism, it's communism, what you're laying out, that you will own nothing. That is that, that was Karl Marx's view, his attack on capital, his attack on capitalism. It was all about you know, materialism, material wealth is a distraction, and we need to, for, to reach equality, we need to level everybody out <laughs> so everybody has an equal share in poverty and misery. He didn't say that part, but in practice practicality, that's how it works, because human beings are inherently unequal. You have talents that I don't have. I have talents that you don't have. I can't be a major league baseball player. I I could be a major league shopper, which is why I'm particularly (laughs) furious about you will own nothing. Um, But, you know, that's the way it is. And what they don't say is their idea of equality, because human beings are inherently unequal, in terms of their strengths and weaknesses, that you can only in- achieve equality through the barrel of a gun. And yeah. I and, mean, and, and if, if I can stop you there, just because the two things I want to point out, one is it reminds me of the Kurt Vonnegut short story, Harrison Bergeron, where you had these people who were very, very gifted, gifted dancer, gifted athlete, and they physically limited them so that they could kind of be at that same level as the worst person because it was the only way to, to create that equality. So it's a great short story if people haven't read it. The second piece is that, um, you know, it, while they, they claim they want equality, it's equality for everybody else. You know, they, they want to be in that elite ruling class. It never really applies to them. And that's how they gain their power and their wealth by sort of taking those opportunities away from anybody who might dare challenge and compete with them. That's a really important point, Carolyn. I'm glad that you raised it because in, uh, in Marx's um, uh, theory, about how communism would evolve from socialism to full-blown communism, one thing remains constant there, and that is the concept of the vanguard. The vanguard is the elite ruling class. You know, in communism theory, communist theory, the the vanguard eventually, this, this is the ruling class that is supposed to bring the people along to full-blown communism. And then at the end point, once communism fully evolves, the vanguard is supposed to, in Karl Marx's words, wither away. But human nature being what it is, people love power and they love wealth and they love control. The vanguard never withers away. So in this modern version of it with the Great Reset and what you're describing, the vanguard, the Klaus Schwab's and Yuval Hariri's of the world, they will be the vanguard to drag the world kicking and screaming into this dystopian vision, but they will never just melt into the fabric like the rest of us owning nothing and, quote, being happy. They will have plenty of wealth and cars and private jets and beef (laughs) to eat, correct? They, they will, because, you know, they're just doing it for your good. They're, they're much smarter. They're, they're much more well-equipped than the rest of us peasants. And so, you know, they need to make sure they have the tools and resources so that they can save the world and make sure that everything's great. Um, it, it reminds me of the story that I shared in the book from that vintage Twilight Zone episode where the aliens come down to Earth and uh, the people of Earth are somewhat skeptical of the aliens, but the aliens say, no, you know, we, we've been monitoring you. We see you have war. We see you have famine. We have technology that takes care of all that. And, and we just want to help you. So, you know, the people of Earth are a little bit skeptical and they put the alien through a lie detector test and he passes it through with flying colors. So they start to embrace the technology and it's working. And while this is going on, um, they took one of the the sort of manuals that the, the alien had with him. And this, this sort of CIA type of group starts decoding it and they, they get through the cover and the cover says to serve man. And, um, you know, they say, well, that that sounds like a noble intention. The technology is working. This is fantastic. These people just these aliens just want to look out for us. So you get the people of Earth, they're boarding spaceships. They're going to the, the aliens, you know, mother country uh, or planet. And, uh, you know, one of the guys from the CIA is like, ah, you know, I think I'm going to go and check it out. And his, he's boarding the spaceship. Uh, another person from the CIA has now cracked the rest of the code of the book and runs to the spaceship and goes, to serve man, it's a cookbook. 
<laughs> and I think that that's sort of my takeaway from all of this is that, yeah, it sounds really good to serve man until you find out that really it's a cookbook. And all of these people who are talking about, oh, they're doing this for the good of the planet and doing whatever. It's 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 almost like they're viewing you as this, you know, cannon fodder or, or food or whatever. Um, they don't care about that. They really just want to maintain their power and their control. And so whatever they need to say to do that. Um, you know, is what they're going to do. And, you know, damn be your freedoms and your ownership and your rights and, and all of those things. Yeah. You know, we recently had a conversation on this program with James Melville out of the UK talking about uh, digital identities and central bank digital currencies, which we are also going to deal with uh, with you. Um, but, you know, he made the exact argument that governments, uh, you know, during during COVID, COVID was essentially a test run to see how easily we would give up our freedoms and comply with government mandates. And he was saying, I I was making the point that the left and these globalists are so adept at using emotional language and emotionally charged arguments to get you to go along. And he added to that and said, yeah, and and then you add to that the uh, argument for ease and convenience and comfort. Like, oh, if you have a digital ID, you can move about the world, no problem. Exactly. But the price for that is giving up your economic freedom. Okay, so let's really get into some of the specifics that you write about in You Will Own Nothing, Carol. Why do you say that we are already in World War F and the F stands for financial, right? This is a financial war. Why do you say we're already there? Yeah, so if you think about what's been happening, um, the economic chaos that we've been through, the inflation, the debasement of the currency, uh, you know, the weaponization of the U.S. dollar by the Biden administration, the fact that the Fed hasn't held the dollar uh, stable for the U.S. or the world, uh, the fact that it's just harder for the average person to get ahead and to pursue that American dream. You know, young people have unfortunately all but given up on things like home ownership, which are central to the American dream. You see this going on, and it, it struck me that normally, if you go back in history and you had a war. You would have uh, a government trying to conquer another country and their land and their people to get their riches and, and their um, you know, their wealth and whatnot. And here what's happening in the United States, it's the opposite, is our, our own government is at the point where they're so desperate in terms of the public debt to GDP and, you know, kind of where they are, um, you know, in their capabilities and their sort of position at the center of the global financial universe, that they're looking for any way they can to continue to pilfer from the American people. And it's very much positioned as them trying to go after the wealthiest people, the billionaires and the, the ultra wealthy, whatever that means. Um, and the point that that what they're trying to do is they're trying to get average Americans to have this envy politics and to cede their rights. You know, once you say that it's okay to do this for a billionaire, you've now basically said it's okay to do it to you, even though they promised they weren't going to do it to you. But we know the billionaires are the ones who are by and large on the inside. They've got the lawyers and the accountants and you know all the people who are crafting this language to, to find a way around it. Really, what they're trying to do is bleed out the middle class that has the, the bulk of the, the money and the assets um, and uh, and you know really won't have that that fight back. So I, I do think we're in already this financial war. And you know, we have, you know, in addition to what's going on with the Fed and the US government, you have all these other forces that are really trying to to take things from you in terms of your ability to have ownership and freedom, whether it be the bad actors like the WEF. Um, the UN, some of the big businesses out there. And then I put big tech in a category all by itself because it used to be that technology really helped democratize opportunity for everybody. And we've gotten to the point where it's sort of flipped on its head. We have a handful of big companies that really are acting as de facto governments that are so powerful. They have more users than you know many of the countries uh, have citizens. Their balance sheets are fortress. 
Uh, they may have um, you know higher market caps than countries have GDPs. And you know, while that's not an apples to apples scenario, it just kind of gives you a sense of the scope. And there's no real capitalism. There's no free, you know kind of free market and choice that you usually have one or two or maybe a handful of companies that are controlling major infrastructure. And they all want to rent your life back to you as a subscription or a service. And in the process, they get wealthy. So you have all of these forces, you know, individually, sometimes they work together coming at you, um, which is a lot to deal with. And so I think it makes it, you know, really having this, this idea that you are at battle and that we need to have this counter-revolution, um, I think, makes it a, an easier lens to, to understand everything through your point, Carol, about the middle class is so critical because it's it's critical economically, but it's also critical politically and culturally. What we do know throughout history is that when uh, nation states have uh, stable, um, uh, thriving middle classes, it's stabilizing to the entire society. So when you have... Like, like countries like Saudi Arabia have the very rich at the top from petrodollars, petro wealth, and then a servant class. And they do not have a middle class to speak of. One of the things that the Chinese Communist Party did very, very effectively, which is something Gorbachev blew. Gorbachev screwed up the entire approach to reform, and that's why there's no more Soviet Union. But the reason there is still a CCP in China controlling that huge country is because they put economic reform first. They have this hybrid model of like it's it's a it's a command economy. So it's sort of half Marxist, half capitalist with, you know, Beijing in total control. But what they were able to do was develop a middle class which stabilized their society and staved off any kind of demand for a revolution. Because if there's a middle class and you have some potential for mobility, upward mobility, and you your stomach is full and you've got a, a little car, it may not be a Mercedes, but it's a car and you can tool around, it, that stabilizes the whole system. So their attacks on the middle class to decimate the American middle class, the British middle class, middle classes across the West and beyond what impact, both economic and social, is that going to have? Yeah, I mean, it's a really great insight, Monica. And I think that you've seen throughout history this what I call barbelling of the population, where you do have this kind of, you know, ruling class on one side, everybody else on the other, and very little people in the middle. Um, it is a symbol of, of what happens in these countries that it, uh, embrace these Marxist ideals. And it does, it, it ends up in, in chaos um, and, and really, you know, unfortunate outcomes, you know, not just economically, but, you know, then to social unrest and, uh, you know, changes sort of the tenor of the, the population. I mean, you could look at a country like Venezuela, um, which was the the fourth or fifth wealthiest country in in the world, and um, you know was was thriving, you know whatever it was fifty years ago, and you know through their their nationalization of the resources and their their shifts away from you know kind of a, a more capitalistic society, um, you you end up with most of the population owning nothing to the point of, you know, when I did the research for my last book, um, the median net worth in Venezuela was zero. Mm -hmm. Zero. Mm -hmm. So that's literally, they own nothing. Right, which is the the ultimate ideal. And it, it I mean, this has incredible implications um, in, in so many ways. So the, obviously, this is designed to kill off the American dream, which we have lived. I know you have, I have, um, my parents, my grandparents have seen it in, in every direction. The land of opportunity will no longer exist. It will be an Orwellian dystopian landscape here in America. And it's really geared toward the social credit system. Because, you know, as I said with James Melville recently, all of these people that we're talking about who are designing and executing this vision 
are all on the record expressing open admiration for the CCP model, which is, again, total control, police state, and a surveillance state. But it's all based on this this, uh, this social credit system where if you have wrong think or express yourself in a way that is displeasing to the regime, you are going to be severely financial, financially punished, but also in terms of pulling back on your freedom to live your life. So what in, in your mind, how do you define social credit, Carol, and how does it play into this new financial world order? Yeah, this is a, a place where um, a lot of people have been really keyed in as they have you know, gotten the book and we've been having these discussions because I think that framing it economically is not something people have thought of. And people don't necessarily think about you know your property and your property rights as that integral piece of freedom that it is. And so, you know, when I think about social credit, I think of it in three stages. I think of it, you know, kind of as cancel culture, you know, that that comes from, you know, the sort of grassroots level. I see it as an informal system, which is sort of, you know, the government may be involved. It's a little bit more than than cancel culture, but there's it's not a codified system. And then there's sort of the, the full state system. And China certainly has the most advanced, although not the uh, full, fully advanced system that some people think that it might be. But in China, it's basically done on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. So in some jurisdictions, you might have a number score. In some places, it might be a letter score. And the kind of things that get you rewards or punishments, you know, blacklist or, or red list, um, you know, depend on sort of the priorities of that jurisdiction. And you'll see this in a lot of the things that we talk about. They're very malleable um, intentionally so that they can change with the priorities of the ruling class. So things like, you know, going to visit your elderly parents might get you a, a, a good mark um, or donating blood. But if you say something bad against the government, it's a bad mark. And, you know, continually shifts. There's some funny ones like cheating on video games and uh, taking up too much room on an airplane, which, you know, definitely deserves a punishment, but maybe not at the state level. Um, <laughs> right. So, so, you know, it's, it's kind of this, um, you know, back and forth there. And so they have it really institutionalized. And interestingly, they've actually started it at the business level. So the business social credit is even more developed than the individual social credit, although the individual social credit is quite robust. And I think that goes back to this sort of are we or are we not capitalist um, scenario that you were talking about, that they want some opportunity, but they don't want individuals to become too big and too powerful outside the confines of the party. So you've seen things like billionaire Jack Ma, who, who started Alibaba Group and the sister group and Financial. Um, you know, he disappeared for a while, then he came back, then he decided he was just going to be kind and give up, you know, some of his shareholdings. So, you know, you see that playing out at that business level, which sends a signal that, you know, you have some opportunity, but don't try to get, you know, too much or too cute here, or we will, you know, punish you in, in a certain way. So, you know, I think that's, that's very um, dystopian in and of itself. But if you take that back to what's happening in the U.S., I think that we can really see this play out over COVID. And if you think about the different ways that you can be attacked, whether it's, you know, cancel cultures or social credits, it really is about, um, economic freedoms, right? If they come after your social standing, it's they don't want people to associate with you and get you economic opportunities. If they come after your job, it's the way you earn a living. If they come after your actual assets, you know, it's, it's your wealth. So think about what happened during COVID. You know, if you didn't take the jab or you didn't wear a mask, your social standing was, was attacked. You know, you were not allowed to you know, participate and, and go to restaurants, participate in society and go to restaurants. Um, they may take pictures of you and ridicule you on social media. On a direct basis for your jobs, you know, the Biden administration put out a mandate that basically said that if you didn't get the jab, then you know, in certain areas you couldn't have a job. And with big businesses, even the ones that weren't caught up directly in that mandate, you know, there's still that coercion by fear that, oh, you know, it didn't exactly say us, but I don't want to run afoul of this because what happens to me, um, you know, if I don't follow along with this mandate? So, you know, some of that was direct and some was sort of coercive. And then there's the, you know, actual taking away 
of your assets. And certainly during COVID, we saw businesses shut down. Uh, if you were our neighbors to the north and you were part of the tr the trucker freedom convoy, your bank accounts were frozen. And so, you know, I think that's a really good example of how we've had, you know, this this sort of informal social credit. And we've seen it in other spheres. We've seen, you know, the government um, colluding with social media to silence people. We've seen people lose access to sort of their bank accounts and social platforms and, and in some cases their jobs. So there really is this, this clear social tie um, and an economic tie that that creates a through line. And then, you know, if you think about like what's required to, to sort of codify this, you need technology to be able to sort of surveil, gather information, analyze it at scale, which we obviously have. And then you need buy-in from the population. In the CCP, the buy-in is done, you know, clearly by, you know, force and, and coercion. But I think here there is this sort of what I call ROE return on ego aspect to it <laughs> that, you know, you get to be part of the cool crowd. You get to be part of right think, at least, and you know, while you're useful um, and while you agree with us, but you get to put an emoji in your bio and you get to wear a t-shirt and put up a sign and tell everyone how great you are. You know, maybe you even get selected to show up and, and go to the white house and take a picture with the president and so there becomes this sort of positive social reinforcement if you do what is deemed the right thing. And that's very scary. And when you layer in, you know, the, the thoughts about digital currency and having the Fed and the government control the currency and what that means vis-a-vis -vis these tie-ins, um, it becomes exponentially more scary. All right, Carol, I'm going to ask you to please stand by. We've got much more coming up with Carol Roth on the other side. Sit tight. As central banks in countries like China, India, and Australia begin transitioning to a digital currency, the Federal Reserve has been contemplating the same for the U.S. With a digital currency, the government could track every single purchase you make. Officials could even prohibit you from purchasing certain products or even easily freeze or seize part or all of your money. These are some of the reasons concerned Americans are reaching out to Birch Gold Group. They want to have a physical asset that's independent from the U.S. dollar. Gold held tax-sheltered in a retirement account. Learn if gold is right for you, too. Text Monica to 989-898, and they will send you a free info kit on gold. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, Birch Gold has been helping my listeners from the very beginning. Text MONICA to 989-898 and claim your free info kit on gold because if a central bank digital currency becomes reality, it'll be very nice to have some gold to depend on. Okay, we are back with Carol Roth, her brand new book, Go Get It. It's called You Will Own Nothing, Your War with a New Financial World Order and How to Fight Back. I want to spend some time, we, we spoke to James Melville uh, recently about this, but I want to get your uh, view of what you think a central bank digital currency is and why we need to all be worried about it. Because look, under Joe Biden, this Treasury Department under Janet Yellen has uh, begun a pilot program. So it's uh, two and a half, three years underway. Other Western governments like in the UK are doing the exact same thing. So this central bank digital currency concept is much further down the track than anybody realizes. And if it is in, in uh, put into effect, it really does spell the end of your economic freedom, your ability to buy and sell, your ability to, to fly your ability to move around the country, your ability to, to live, to feed yourself and your family. Yeah. Tell us what it is in your mind. Just give us a brief um, thumbnail sketch of a CBDC uh, and what it would mean for the average American in practical terms. So it's a conflation of the interest in uh, digital currencies like crypto and cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. The entire thesis there is that it's decentralized 
we don't trust the, the the Federal Reserve, we don't trust the government. And so we need to have, you know, a, a means to trade amongst ourselves that can't be manipulated by these forces. What the governments are doing is they're basically conflating interests in that. And they're saying, oh, well, you don't want to trust those guys, you know, who knows who's involved with that, but trust us, you know, in the government and the Fed, because, you know, we've done such a, a bang up job at, at keeping your, your money stable for so long. Um, but people don't realize that. And so what the central bank digital currency would mean, particularly at the retail level, is imagine your dollar bill or even your credit card that has a a special microchip in it. And every time you want to buy something, that chip is scanned and the Fed and the government can track every single thing that you're doing and purchasing and theoretically would have the opportunity to, to basically disallow you from making those purchases. So Monica, maybe you and I have said something snarky on social media against the governments. They didn't like that. They can cut off your access. We ate too many burgers. Well, you know, there's a push from the government to cut down on eating burgers because they're bad for the environment, you know, that they tell us when they go on their private planes to the bad burger conference. And um, so if you go to, to buy a burger and you've had more than your allotment for the month, they could shut that down. And I think it's particularly scary, you know, just in terms of the the agency and freedoms you would lose by having that level of transparency at the government level and that level of control and and further centralization of your or of you know the the currency itself, you know, not just the the system behind it, but the actual currency itself. Um, I, I don't think people sort of appreciate how much agency you would lose if that were to come to fruition. And in terms of, you know, putting this into practice, there are a lot of, you know, very easy carrots that they could use to get people to buy in and really rally support for this without knowing what they gave up. Kind of like when people wanted the the stimulus checks, um, you know, under the under build back better and, and, you know, they, everyone said, oh, I want that. And we went, no, don't do that. You know, you're going to end up with huge inflation. You're going to, for this thousand dollars you're getting or 1200 bucks, you're going to have seven or $10,000 in additional costs for the rest of your life. People don't understand that dynamic. They don't understand that money is a, a proxy for productivity and you can't just print it without additional productivity and, and not have the purchasing power be impacted. So they could say, you know, hey, Monica, you know, I'm going to give you a hundred digital dollars for every dollar you turn in. And, you know, you're going to go, well, that's insane. But somebody else is going to go, oh, I'm going to be a millionaire. And it sort of harkens back to that skit that I referenced in the book from Saturday Night Live, where when they used to talk about things like monetary policy, where Dan Aykroyd's Jimmy Carter, and he's like, wouldn't you like to have a $200,000 car and wear a $75,000 suit? We'll all be millionaires, you know, kind of poking fun at the fact that people are so caught up at sort of the the nominal headline number and not the actual purchasing power of, of this. So they could do that. They could also, um, you know, some a scenario that we're in now where they've caused this inflation and then they're trying to get down the inflation that they caused themselves um, you know, right now they're using tools like raising interest rates, but wouldn't it be clever when they try to quote unquote destruct demand if they say to you, well, if you had a digital currency, we could really control inflation much better. Not with most people not understanding that when they destruct demand in that scenario, it's literally turning off your access to your money. You cannot spend if you do not have that, that access to those, those CBDC dollars, the digital US dollar. So I think there are a lot of things, you know, UBI could be a carrot as well, uh, but there are a lot of ways they could try to get this entrenched in the population. And as you pointed out, you know, these are things that the G7 put out their principles on a coordinated basis uh, for retail facing CBDCs, that pilot program that you referenced, um, they did a, a write up on it that was at the wholesale level and it was, you know, fulfilled with optimism. So these are not the kinds of things that you do if you don't if it's not something that you're seriously considering. And so I do think that, you know, if and when this were to happen, 
even if it was just sort of a, an interim period where this happened, because, um, you know, it, it may have to be forced upon people to really take off kind of like the, the scenario in China, because, you know, China, <laughs> on a volunteer basis, a lot of people opened up their wallets, but put like the equivalent of 50 cents in there. Um, you know, it, it may end up having to be forced if we they can't use these carrots. And then you have to figure out if you're somebody who's not on the inside and you don't have access to your money, you know, how how are you going to live? How are you going to get the things that you need or that you just want as an American on a day-to-day basis? Well, they they ultimately want to turn the United States into a vassal state and they want all of us to be slaves to them so that we will serve and worship the state. Again, this is modern communism. This is what we're talking about here. And I'm glad you raised big tech, Carol, because a big tech ties together with all of this. They really can't, these globalists can't execute this without working hand in glove with big tech, social credit, digital IDs, central bank, digital currencies, and this whole concept of you will own nothing um, and just glide through life, but you will be a slave to the state. It, it's really, it, it is Orwell and Huxley on steroids. And I saw Elon Musk the other day tweeted someone wearing a hat that said, make Orwell fiction again. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but part of our job and you through this extraordinary book is to raise awareness and get everybody focused on what is happening. Because again, we are pretty far advanced um, in this way. In our remo- um, remaining moments with you, uh, Carol, now that we've gone through all of these horrors, let's talk a little bit about how we can fix it. Can you tell us how the rest of us, average Americans, can fight back against this and reclaim the American dream? I think the the, the broad takeaway, and Monica, I think as a, as somebody who's been you know, in the financial sphere, you'll probably appreciate this. A lot of this advice is just good financial advice no matter what happens. I think that you will view it differently with this background information and maybe it gives you a, a greater sense of urgency. But you know, it's not that much of a different behavioral kind of sphere than you would normally have other than maybe being a little bit more intentional around the concepts of ownership. But let's take something like a CBDC. I mean, the first thing is that it requires congressional approval. So we have to work anytime that we see anything that's close uh, being slipped in. We have to to work and work the phones and call and do whatever we can to prevent that from from passing through Congress, because if that's the case, um, you know, that's going to be a a huge issue for us. But then you have to think that maybe it does. Maybe it does get passed through at some point in time. So if you are in a scenario where you didn't have access to your money in whole or in part at some point in time, what would you do? How would you be able to barter and trade? I'm a little bit more old school. So I look to things like precious metals, um, you know, small denominations of, of silver and gold that you might be able to use to, to barter and trade. I know there's a, a whole crypto class who obviously has the, the, the theory of the Bitcoiners around this. Um, it's not my speed, but you know, certainly everybody should check everything out for themselves. And then just going around in your community and, and having that group you can rely on. Okay, who's the person, you know, who's going to raise the chicken and who's the doctor? And, you know, how, how do we make sure that we have just, you know, kind of the the main points covered, at least for some period of chaos where while we try to to right the ship. And some people may say that this sounds very preppery, but I think it's just being prepared. I think that preppers and, you know, God bless them, nothing wrong with them, but they they really walk through life um, living, you know, that this is going to happen. And every day they're, they're living that life. I think being prepared just takes that burden off of you so that, you know, when a situation does happen or if it happens, that you're not panicking in that moment. I I liken it to your house uh, being on fire. Like it's a really bad time to A, purchase insurance and also come up with an escape plan. You want to have that thought through so that when you see the fire, you don't just have, you know, you're not a deer in headlights and go, oh my God, something bad's happening. What do I do? So I think that, you know, that's an easy thing. Um, If you have the wherewithal, either by yourself or with a group of like-minded people, one of the things that we're seeing the elite do is that they're buying up a lot of land. They're buying up land uh, that has productive use, whether it is farmland, whether it's for ranching, whether that has you know, trees on it, whether it has water rights. Um, you know, <laughs> There's a reason why they're doing that. And so if they're doing that, you might want to do that as well. 
Uh, I would say the same thing as you kind of look at a diversified portfolio in terms of, of companies and stocks. You know, if, if there's a, you know, they're they're making those investments, you know, that may be something that you want to include as part of your portfolio as well. But it, it does come down to this idea of ownership and particularly when it comes to to a home, um, you know, don't rent if you can. You maybe you have to move somewhere else um, to to kind of start out. You know, given the the parameters that we have today. But think about that. And then if you're selling your house, maybe don't sell it to a corporate buyer. You know, there there are a whole there's a whole slew of demand out there, and I know it's a little bit more brain damage and it's easier to just give it over to a Wall Streeter who says, "Oh, I've got a lot of cash, and I don't care what it looks like, and I'm not going to require you to to fix a couple cracks." But think about what you're doing in the system. You know, we've got one out of every five houses plus being sold to corporate buyers that are, you know, now looking to rent people back the American dream. So, you know, if you are an asset holder, you you can help on the other side of that as well. Yeah, there's really great advice and terrific guidance, uh, Carol, because I think a lot of people feel helpless and hopeless because it's all so overwhelming. Everywhere you look from world governments to these globalist organizations to big tech to to our banking system, everything just seems geared against us and oriented toward this agenda. So that is really fantastic advice. And this is absolutely an uphill battle for sure, but absolutely one that we must fight before we lose it all. So you have given us such an important roadmap uh, to whom our enemies are and what they're doing and how to defeat them. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Carol. I mean, you're just extraordinary, but also for organizing all of this into this fantastic book called You Will Own Nothing. Carol Roth, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Monica. Thanks, first of all, for being a great longtime friend, a supporter, uh, somebody who does you know such important work and uh, just being a, an overall rock star. I'm privileged to know you. All right. That's going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, tell all of your friends, family, colleagues about the Monica Crowley podcast. So appreciate you guys and so appreciate you checking out all of our great sponsors. I will see you on the flip side. See you then. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.